This is Creative Talks Episode 8 with Kari Andrews. Welcome to Creator Talks. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. The reason why I'm bringing you an episode today is because on Wednesday, January 11th, Renato Jones, The 1% is being published by Image Comics. It will be available in comic shops everywhere. And I'm speaking today to the author, the artist, the colorist of the book, Kari Kyle Andrews. Now, Kari lives in Vancouver, British Columbia. He's a comic book writer, an artist, and a filmmaker. Now, his comic book work includes Spider-Man Reign, which was published in 2006 by Marvel Comics. He also worked on Iron Fist, The Living Weapon, as writer and artist. That's a 2014 series that ran for 12 issues, and that's going to be out in trade paperback from Marvel Comics in March of this year. And we're going to talk about Renato Jones, The 1%, the trade paperback that's coming out this Wednesday on January 11th. We also discuss his work as a director, which includes directing an episode of the Sci-Fi Channel series Aftermath. So join me now as I talk with Kari Andrews on Creator Talks. Uh, you have to excuse me. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a little bit stuffed up. It's a little bit a little bit of a cold running through the household right now. Oh, dude, no problem. I, I have been fighting with a cold. I'm over it now, but all of December, I sounded, yeah. much, I sounded much deeper on my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so I was fighting a cold. It was terrible. It was yeah, something I'm on the tail, tail end of it, but I'm in the, the, the very runny nose part of it. Oh, man. Well, I hope you feel better soon and everybody else in the household feels better soon. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. <laughs> well, the timing couldn't be better for us to get together and talk about uh, Renato Jones, which is coming out next week on Wednesday, yeah. the trade. Very exciting. One thing I wanted to ask you about, I was reading the trade actually last night, and I saw the uh, introductory page, So You Want to Be a Compo Creator. That is something I think everyone needs to read, whether they're a compo creator or whether it's art, whether it's a podcast. Yeah, you know, I had it in the back of issue one, and um, it had such a good response, and then it didn't really fit anywhere else besides the front of the trade. So I don't know if it's the best place for it, but that's that's where I put it. <laughs> no, where, perfect, perfect. That's where I put it. I mean, for that alone, people should pick up the trade. <laughs> there you go. Ten, a ten dollar page of a comic book. And the rest <laughs> is pay for that right. one page. Everything else is free. <laughs> I thought I read somewhere that one of your big influences uh, to becoming a creator, comic book creator, was Jim Steranko. Is that right? Yeah, man. Um, when I was growing up, you know, I uh, came into comic books through buying them at Seven Eleven um, or whatever with my family. You know, we'd go for it to buy a chocolate bar, and I'd end up buying a comic book. Or you know, we on our on the road trips, we'd stock up through comic books. And I, you know, I've been reading comic books since before I could read words, so they've always <laughs> been part of my life. And um, as I got a little bit older, I discovered the magic of the comic book store, which is still fairly new back then. And one of the first back issues, quote unquote, I ever bought was this bright and shiny Nick Fury Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. number one that just spoke to me. The cover seems different and weird. And I, I bought it and I was blown away. And it was the first time I remember really seeing who created it, you know, and really paying attention to that name that wrote and drew it. And, uh, and I just, uh, it was an eye opener that, Oh it, yeah. Like a, a, a guy, a guy did this, you know, one guy did this book that I, that I like so much. Yeah. Story and art. I mean, you know, quite an inspiration. Have you ever met Jim? Have you ever had a chance to 
meet him at a con or anything? I mean, very, very briefly, randomly at San Diego as a fan. Okay. A few years ago. I, I think I just said hello. And I think I was working for Marvel at the time. And I, and I, but I had just kind of started and I was like, oh, hi, Mr. Drinko. Nice to meet you. I, I work for Marvel. It's like, hey, how's it going, kid? Or whatever. You know, whatever his response <laughs> right. was. Uh, oh, yeah. He's I, a huge personality. He was actually here in Delaware a couple of years ago at a local comic shop because they were having an anniversary. So I had a chance as a fan to meet him. Actually, I wrote a story about him for a local uh, newspaper. Um, actually, the first one I wrote, and it was based on Jim Strick. I didn't, I didn't speak to him directly in the article because I don't think he does interviews. He doesn't let you record them or doesn't really speak to them. I had to speak to the person that was representing him. <laughs> but still, I mean, amazing stories. And I, I overhear him talking to the other you're fans. Also, in line. You're also not speaking to me. You're actually speaking through a uh, – <laughs> I'm typing words for him to say. <laughs> um, any other influences? Uh, oh, tons. I mean, tons. I mean, I, like I said, comic books have always been part of my life. So, um, I mean, you name it. Anyone good, basically. But really, um, when I was growing up in the 80s, my heroes were always the writer artists, whether mm-hmm. it was uh, you know Frank Miller or uh, Jim Stranko or Will Eisner or Howard Jakin or Walt Simonson or whoever, whoever at the time, Jim Starlin. I mean – the death of Captain Marvel was actually the first time a, a comic book made me cry. <laughs> that graphic novel kind of hit me, hit me um, uh, as as a as a young man. So it's always been the writer artist that has, you know, really. I that kind of work has always hit me the hardest. Yeah, I mean, because you have to have an understanding. Well, a good artist is able to tell a story through the pictures, and if you're you know able to do that, you can also be a very good writer. So it, it, it's a cross set of skills that one really helps the other very much if you're good at both. Yeah, well, what's so unique about comic books is it's the one platform that is a perfect marriage of words and images, and so in many ways, it's it was designed for one person to do both. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I mean. I like I like uh, there's a lot of writers and I've loved working with them and and I love great collaborations great teams you know Claremont Byrne or whoever the great teams are always amazing but I always find that the best teams kind of become one entity anyways whether it's like um, Matt Fraction David Aha or, or whoever yeah those yeah. collaborations become kind of a single entity but in my mind the, the perfect distilled uncut pure version of that is actually one person. And that work tends to have a certain quality about it that is, you know, how you how you approach a task often determines the results of that task. And it's and I always find that the writer artist the work feels a little bit almost fever dreamish in a weird way. Like the integration between the pictures and images is so um, inherent that it feels often like dreamlike when I when I read those stories. Like whether it's Starinko, that was really it when I was a kid. Those Nick Fury stories felt dreamlike, and you know um, Frank Miller's uh, electrographic novel, which is another big one of my favorites, as growing up felt dreamlike, and it's always those that that kind of a a thing, that intangible thing. I just found is mostly the domain of the writer artist. Yeah, I remember uh, being a big fan of the uh, Lee and Kirby Fantastic Four, and I bought those as back issues. I don't, I didn't buy them off the stands, uh, but I remember uh, reading John Byrne's take on them. Was I mean, there were great creators working on the book, writers and artists throughout the history of the the series, but that was the one I felt really captured the original run by Stan and Jack. But yet, you know, John Byrne spent on it writing some new stories, but it just he, he alone as the writer and the artist. 
I think had one of the best runs next to the original Stan and Jack. Oh, yeah. I mean, what's strange is how little we talk about John Byrne these days, but for many years he was the, you know, the king of comic books. Like, he was the guy. He was the one that had not just um, the most... I mean, he, his output was prolific. Mm-hmm. His effect was enormous. He changed... The, the changes he made to, like, Superman resonate today in today's work and movies and film. And it's interesting how he has went away. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny you mentioned that his Superman work. I was uh, I was watching, I downloaded um, off of uh, Amazon the Doctor Who Christmas special. Uh, I don't know if you heard about it. It was uh, Doctor Mysterio Returns. I did hear about it, yeah. I haven't seen it, though. Well, there's a, I won't spoil anything. If you get a chance to see it, it's a wonderful uh, Christmas episode. And there's a little kid in the story, and his room is decorated with comic book art and comic books. So, and everything that you would recognize. I mean, not just things fictitiously made up for the show, but Marvel and DC books. And a book that he pulls out that he's reading that the doctor's talking to him about is a Superman comic book by John Byrne. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I heard. Yeah, I've heard about this. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> you know, he's, he's like he's really like one of those guys that changed the game. And what's funny is I w- I ended up going to um, he dropped out of the Alberta College of Art and Design, and that's the same art college that I dropped out of. Oh, really? Uh, you know, some pride in that fact. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about your work. So sure. you've got, you've got Renardo Jones coming up as a trade, and um, you know, reading it last night. I found that each chapter worked really well, almost like a standalone story, an adventure. But reading it all together as one, um, you know, I got a better grasp of Renato's internal struggle. Yeah, um, it's it's too bad <coughs> you couldn't have the um, actual trade because we've got some cool um, spot gloss. It's actually a pretty a pretty nice hefty uh, piece of packaging of some cool spot gloss and and the stock and everything. It's just pretty cool. But yeah, I like I wrote I created that book. Um, to be read in single installments, and in and it, I'm, in many ways, I made an effort to have each issue. Often, they have a bit of a standalone aspect to them. You know, almost every issue has its own kind of mini villain and mini story, um, and that was something I was interested in, in trying out. Um, and then when you read it as a whole, yeah, I hopefully does connect. And then season two, it it picks it picks up. Um, Pretty, pretty fast and pretty hard right after the end of season one. And that's um, – is that coming out like May or April or May of this year? It is hasn't it? been scheduled yet, but okay. it's, it, looks, it looks like May. It looks okay. like it you know, May. So that's kind of the uh, – it's not a confirmed uh, date, but that's the target. Okay. Awesome. Great. Um, was there – uh, an event or personal experience that made you choose doing a creator-owned comic book addressing wealth and power and how it corrupts? I mean, why why that yeah. subject to start with for your own project? Well, I think it's just a result of the world we live in today. I mean, I live in Vancouver, and for instance, in Vancouver, well, now I live in a suburb of Vancouver, but Vancouver and the suburbs, uh, the price of housing has, um, like, shot up by like i don't know like crazy like mm-hmm. crazy like like 300 percent in the past five years or something like that it's just insane like we have so much foreign investment and shell companies buying up property and it's like it's putting the squeeze on people who 
want to live here <laughs> and actually live here. Like it's a it's such a crazy place where you'll have two doctors who you know, husband and wife doctor team who can't afford to buy a house in Vancouver because they don't make enough money. It's just like what? Mm. You know, like what? Like what happened here? And it just permeates your life. So when I when I went to do a creator own book, the first question I asked wasn't wasn't um who is my hero going to be? It was it was who are the bad guys? And it I was so disinterested in kind of the tried and true um Oh, bank robbers like they don't exist in today people don't rob banks really like they used to <laughs> right. like I never understood why you would have to become a superhuman super powered superhero to like stop a bank robber you know <laughs> like that's right the- yeah <laughs> um, so it was like question was like well who are the bad guys of today in today's world in a modern world in a neo world um, it's it's wealth that's the only real superpower and wealth can um, be used to get out of trouble, to hide yourself from prosecution, to um, fuel uh, good things, but also evil things. And, you know, in, in today's world, wouldn't it be nice if there was someone who could, you know, face the kind of evil that hides behind wealth uh, and, and dish, dish out his restitution? It's not revenge. It's restitution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know we've seen plenty of stories in the news where someone gets off from some prosecution or some case because of their wealth. I mean, you think, oh, that's it's an open and shut case, and because of their money, they either have a reduced sentence or they get out of it. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 everywhere. It's those stories. I mean, there's so many of them. It's so like I could I could just write these stories for years because um, you know wealth is money and money's power, and the wealth have only grown exponentially wealthy in the past twenty years. Yeah. Ever get ever widening gap right now? Yeah, and so you know, in my fantasy world, I would love I would love you know someone to uh, deliver some restitution to. I mean, the other thing that I, I was thinking about when I was creating him was when you think about Batman, like one of the ultimate superheroes and the ultimate rogues gallery of supervillains. Well, he was created as a billionaire child from a billionaire family worth billions. Um, and his billionaire parents were gunned down by a little street thug. And so he spent his billions of dollars of money and all his power to train himself and hone himself and build himself billions of dollars worth of technology to then declare war on these poor, impoverished criminals. Like, it's like... <laughs> <laughs> Never thought of it that way. <laughs> Good you know, point, like yeah. Warfare, and it was like in the time, I think, when he was created in the 30s, I think the poor were viewed as like the people that needed to be jailed and punished and controlled and holding back society, but not today. That doesn't exist. Like our jails are full, are full of, of quote unquote criminals. Uh, you know, we, that's not the kind of, the kind of common street crime is not the evil of today. It's the, it's the super rich that can just, you know, yeah. do horrible things and avoid, and avoid anything. So, so that so that was definitely something on my mind as as I created Renato Jones. And this book puts a face on the evil rather than just being an evil corporation. It's yeah. the people that run those corporations that he's after. Yeah, it was either going to be, to be honest. I mean, in today's world, there's probably three kinds of evil, true evil um, that can exist. One is one is corporations. It's this kind of actual definition of psychopathy, right? It's like 
uh, complete lack of empathy, um, uh, complete motivation for power and control under any circumstances. Like that's any corporation. That's just how they're designed. They're designed to be psychopathic entities. So that's an evil. There is dictatorships that you know enslave nations and nation states, and uh, that's a kind of evil. And then really, there's like super rich people. And I just thought it was um, at least the evil that ha- the the kind of evil person that could be amongst the super rich. And I just thought it was the most fun. You know, shooting Coca Cola in the face is not as fun as shooting a evil <laughs> guy in the face. So. Yeah, I mean, I read the book and it really had me thinking. You know. The heart of the corruption seems to be this accumulation of money for power because some people accumulate wealth. And they take care of their family. Some give back to the community, some you know, either through donations. It's just interesting how some people just keep accumulating and accumulating as a, as a sense of some kind of security, as a sense of some kind of control. And that seems to be more the rule than the exception of those who give back. Yeah, I think, well, let me just say that there are lots of people with money that are very good people and do very good things. But... I remember watching this documentary and um, in the documentary, there was a, a girl who um, this is kind of a, a, a bit of an inspiration to the bliss character in my, in my series, a girl who was adopted to a wealthy family and she came from no money and she was adopted into this family. And she thought, and she even says in this documentary, Oh, um, and I, and I kind of uh, use this bit to inform my character bliss that, she thought once she had all this money, all her worries would be over. But what you find is you just want more. <laughs> you know, there's never yeah. a yeah. point where it's like, I did it. I made it. It's just like, no, you, you accumulate money and wealth and power and you just want more. It's just it's designed. It's like it's in us as human species to, to do that. And uh, the more money you make, you can easily fall into the trap of finding more ways to spend it. You know, get a bigger house, get a better car, get nicer clothes. And they may not be things that you really, really need, but it's very easy to fall into that trap because that's what is – that's the message that's out there. In fact, uh, I like how in the book you've got these ads in there, like perfume ads, uh, <laughs> comic books for the super rich. I was like, well, that's really cool. I've never seen that done before in a, in a trade or a comic. Yeah, well, originally I wanted to get actual – luxury goods ad advertising in the book. I thought that'd be fun. Like to have, <laughs> yeah, it's great. You know, actually have uh, Chanel or whoever, whoever in, in the pages. But the closer I got to publication, I thought, Oh no, this would actually be more fun to just kind of, uh, satirize that idea, you know, like just go Robocop on it and just use it as a fun way to, uh, you know, make it all one cohesive thing. Like those ads can, transfer to the trades and be part of the storytelling process. I think by the time I use the ads in issue five, I've actually placed them more attunely in a way that actually helps the storytelling of the panel to panel pages. So it's just, you know, I think like when you have a TV show, those ad spots and commercial breaks are designed specifically to help propel the storytelling. And I wanted to both do that, but also, you know, kind of satirize that world a little bit. Uh, it's a world I've always been kind of interested in, like fashion and money and power. Mm-hmm. Like, glamorous. Like gla- the James Bond glamour world, you know? It's yeah. all interesting. This is not a political show, but I remember uh, you had said a while back in another interview that when you did the comic book, it was a dangerous thing or dangerous time to be doing that comic book. And at the time you were writing it and it was coming out, uh, Donald Trump was running for president. And now since... The election day and this trade's coming out. He is going to be the president of the United States. 
Um, what are your thoughts are on that? And I'm not looking to like start your political arguments or point fingers at people, but I just like just from a sociological point of view, um, the people that are voting for someone who is a billionaire to be in office, and they're not obviously they're not the one percent. A lot a lot of them aren't. Um, what do you think their connection is? What do you think's going through their head? What are they What are they thinking when they put somebody in office that is so wealthy? Well, I can only comment as a spectator because yes. I actually, you know, I live in Canada. Right. I'm not even, it doesn't even really, I, I, you know, I can watch, but it's, I'm not involved in this process of yours. So, but it's so interesting. The first thing I do in the morning is watch my American uh, political news. And the, and the last thing I do at night is watch. It's such an, what an interesting time. Like what a crazy, absurd world we live in. I mean, regardless of how you fall down on, on the president elect or, or which party you, you are part of, it's. It's just such a disruptive, crazy event that he was elected. Um, and when I created this book, it was not a political book. I had no mm-hmm. notions of trying to affect change or make the world a better place or, or, or dictate sermons. You know, like uh, I just was co- kind of commenting in, on the world we live in and, and using it as a proscenium to tell the story of, 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 a, of a man who does what he does. But it's become something more. Like after I was, after I had already started creating the book, that's when Donald Trump really became a serious contender, and he politicized wealth in a way which hadn't happened before. Like I think Rand Paul kind of dap, stepped his feet into that wealth equation a little bit in a in a past election, but but it became about wealth. The the political process became about wealth in a way I wasn't prepared for, and I don't. I don't think it's good for my book that it's become, <laughs> but it was interesting. And, you know, I, I don't know what, I don't, I can only speculate as to what that means. Here's what I do know. What I do know is that wealth is not created. Like wealth is finite, you know, wealth. there is only so much wealth in this world. And when one group becomes wealthy, it's by taking it, that money away from another group. Mm. And in the past mm-hmm. 20 years, the middle classes, those wages have stagnated while the cost of living have skyrocketed. And the top 1%, their wealth has increased 300 times. That's mm. a true – like that's just what happened in uh, in North America and in America in particular. So that – the only way that 1% got wealth is by getting that money somehow from the the group that didn't, you know, the group that has been losing money uh, over this time. And I, you know, I can only guess now if I'm in that group that has seen my, you know, future kind of eroded and my wedges stagnated. Well, I might look for someone who can promise a return to what was and maybe, and maybe, you know, people look to money to solve everything, whether it's in politics or just in life. Like you can, you know, in, in filmmaking, if you're behind in the day. Well, you can pay people more money to work one hour of overtime. You know, like that's right. the last report. Like, oh, we're going into overtime, but we got to do it. We got to, you know, we got to buy our way out of this mess. Uh, and so I think that's, I can only speculate. As a Canadian, I, I think a lot of people were, were looking to buy the, buy their way out of, out of a mess. And is it going to work? I don't know. Who knows? It's interesting to watch. And, and you know, even though I'm not involved in, I'm not in, I'm not American and I don't live in America, but, you know, a lot of people, Describe Canada as America's hat <laughs> in many ways. <laughs> you know what what happens in the states directly affects us. So it's this strange position we're always in up in Canada, watching. It's like watching the neighbors fight. You know, it's like 
Yeah. Like, show up today, you know, like, like just the day they shoot each other, the day they shoot each other, or, you know, it's like a strange, the strange system, a strange problem, but, but, you know, it's interesting. Yeah, I just wanted your opinion uh, as a Canadian. I mean, um, I don't get into political arguments with people, and they can you know, vote however they want. I just my my theory because I don't know why each person votes the way they do. But um, speaking of the the haves and the have-nots and the wealth, I mean, the way I perceive it is that I think a lot of people are hoping that someone will step in <coughs> and allow them to grow so they can get their share of the wealth. And yeah. so they can be rich too. And I'm like, I don't think it works that way. You know, I th- you know, like you said, there's a finite amount and it's often taken from other people. And it's not just you too can be a millionaire. Well, you possibly, but everyone's not going to be a millionaire. And I just, I think people just see this, this ability to achieve something. It's almost um, like an opiate for the masses. You too can be wealthy, just like me. And I'm going to yeah. see to it. And I don't, you know, it's just not how it works. Well, that was the whole Trump University pitch, wasn't it? That was the pitch <laughs> of his university. Yeah. That then got sued. But, yeah. I mean, here's, here's what's interesting. If you step take a step back and you look at, I mean, we this civilization has been here before. If you, if you look at any time in civilization where one group has accrued the mass amount of wealth to the detriment of the masses, well, well what happens? It's the French Revolution. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that... It's that thing. It's like when when the poor have nothing left to eat, they shall eat the rich. Like that's that's just yeah. that's just history, and we've seen that again and again and again. So I do wonder, like, are we getting there? That would be that would be interesting to watch. You know, uh, <laughs> well, stay tuned. <laughs> you know, you know, like I do wonder. I do wonder because it's 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 a little out of control right now. Yeah. And like we talked about earlier, it's just human nature to want more and to fight for more and it's it's interesting it's interesting well thanks for sharing that <laughs> i'll get back to the creative a process light, of- a of light, a hope a of hope and light <laughs> yes <laughs> so i'm um, looking at the 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 trade paperback yeah i I liked some of the techniques that you used uh, when Renato was flashing back to his childhood. You used, uh, I think you call them like Band-Aid dots for the coloring do- and uh, a folded appearance of the page, like a folded map. And I think in the in the story, it said something about, um, you, you know, those memories are like a map to help you find your way when you're lost. Yeah, well, I, um, I think because I create in different mediums, like I direct film and mm-hmm. TV and I, you know... Um, I paint and sculpt and I also create comic books. I get very interested in the specificities of comic book uh, art making and comic book storytelling and the tools that can only be used in comic books. And, um, but also there's also tools that can port over. So in film, it's become, it's become a bit of a cliche, right? Like, oh, a flashback, maybe we'll go sepia and have like scratches and film grain and it'll jittery. And that's kind of like a, that's kind of a, something we've seen in film a thousand times. It's almost like any filter in iMovie or whatever, any editing platform, you can do this crappy filter and it just seems so cliche, but no one had ever really done that in comic books before. And I thought, oh, well, there is a comic book version of that. Um, and I originally came up with the specifics of this technique in a, a Wolverine annual. I tried it once and it turned out well. And then, I, and then I started using it in Iron Fist Living Weapon and that turned out well. And I, I just a refinement of that same approach that I have now brought into Renato Jones. And the other thing that I was interested in, again, is, the, is what 
can you only do in comic books? And so I'm constantly looking for and trying and out and experimenting new storytelling techniques that can only exist in comic books. And in particular with Renato Jones, what I found is because I wasn't getting paid per page, like traditionally, mm-hmm. um, like a traditionally Marvel, right? I'll get paid a page rate. So if I draw a double page spread, that's them paying me for two pages worth of work, no matter what's in the double page spread. But in an image book, I just get paid by what people buy. And, and the content of that book is inconsequential to an extent. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. on a natural advantage I have in an image book is, well, I can do as many double pages as I want because they don't cost me any more money to do them. They, maybe they cost some more time, but if, if they're simple images, they don't. So what I found, and it happened naturally, was in Renato Jones specifically, is a book about double page spreads. Like I have so many double page spreads in this book, in this mini series, in this, uh, sorry, the season. Um, and in the next season too, that it's, it's become, a bit, become a bit of a staple for me for this, this book. Like that's one of the things that this book has that I haven't been able to do before specifically is huge, use double page spreads in a way that I think is uh, a top two book, like a mainstream book that pages, pays per page couldn't, couldn't even attempt because it would just cost them too much money. Mm-hmm. And here I have the luxury of just like whenever I want, just like increasing the page count and throwing out the no page spreads, even if they're white pages, you know? Yeah, and that's a very good reason to buy the trade where you can see the colors even better on the paper the way you have it finished. And with the double page spreads, you're not going to really get that impact reading it digitally because it's going to be divided by page unless you turn your you know tablet sideways or whatever. But I would think it'd be a much better experience in print format. It's really yeah. The book really is designed for a print format. And again, um, I was very interested in comic books and the print version of the comic book. So I love digital versions. I think how amazing is it that I could just tell anyone in the world, "Hey, you want to read my comic book? Just go to your phone and go to Comicsology and download it for three dollars." You know, like that's amazing. What? That's amazing. Um, it's not like, oh, you're gonna have to find a comic book store and drive there and battle traffic and maybe they still have it. Maybe they don't, maybe it's sold out. Maybe it's a package, you know, like, um, it's so amazing, but the actual way I designed it to be read was on paper with your hands because the page turns, um, are, I were very deliberate and specific. Even the pages that are not double page spreads, I'm very deliberate with what are page turn events. So, you know, in comic books, you open on a odd page, page one, and then you turn the page, and then you have page two, three, and then four, five. So I'm always designing my storytelling to have big reveals or big questions or things, important things happen over a page turn. Yeah, that's, that sounds like you're the director and you coming out, <laughs> the way you set up the book. That's great. Yeah, and again, it's one of those natural advantages that you can have when you both write and draw mm-hmm. that book. You know, like if I'm drawing a, uh, an amazing script by um, an amazing writer, maybe they've thought about those page turns, and maybe they haven't. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's not interested in it. But I can't, as an artist, necessarily redesign that script to then do them. You know, like that's. I think if I'm just drawing someone else's story, I want to draw that story. And honor their script. I don't want to change it necessarily. So uh, it's only by writing and drawing it yourself that you can really, go, I think, you know, go to that next level of uh, comic book language or whatever. You know, the, the tools. 
Yeah, yeah, and I've I've read books where clearly the person writing it and drawing it has laid out the pages in such a way where the page turn is very deliberate and important in the telling of the story, and the impact has been much greater when I'm reading the story. Like, oh, there's a big reveal that was definitely planned that way. I wouldn't have I wouldn't have had that same <coughs> emotional feeling reading the book had it not been laid out that way, and if I was reading it on say a tablet. Yeah, and sometimes editorial can jam you up a little bit. Mm. Like when the ads are placed in a book, sometimes those ads can throw off the um, the page turn moments, and uh, it's just a case of you know an assistant editor not realizing what what those authors were trying to do. Um, but in an image book, you know, just total control of every aspect, so you don't even have to worry about it. Yeah, I was reading in your book too. You had some sample layouts and how you kind of. You would well first. You would kind of brainstorm and throw some ideas on the page, and then eventually you would work a sample layout. And um, you were saying how you find it more restrictive, more difficult when you don't have a set page count, say twenty, twenty-two pages. Like you could make the first issue as long as you wanted to. All the books didn't have to be the same length. And I would, I would think. I don't know. I'm not an artist, but I would think it'd be easier for me to say, okay, I've got twenty-two pages. This is where it has to end. This issue. But you don't have that restriction, but yet it's more difficult. Can you explain that? Yeah. Well, I always am a firm believer that constraints create art. So, you know, how you know something is a haiku is because of those hard constraints. If, mm. if you follow the, um, the format of a haiku, it's no longer a haiku. Same with um, a short story. If a short story is too long, it's not a short story. It's a novel. You know, it's like, it's like constraints make art. So if you're, you know, watercolor painting is a specific kind of paint with a specific, you know, and a specific kind of medium and a specific kind of approach. So when you're in a modern day book, you're only given 20 pages in a Marvel or DC book. Mm -hmm. And it's a, a hard 20 pages. And sometimes it's a fight and a battle to make those 20 pages work. But at the end of the day, you will never be allowed to do more than those 20 pages. And that's just what you're stuck with. And you, it becomes part of your um, pattern in an image book. You can have as many pages as you want or do not want. So, so part of the battle is like, well, I could make it 32 pages or 46 pages or 62 pages. And I guess I'm affecting my bottom line because I'm only going to get paid the same amount no matter how big it is. But if the story really wants to be 36 pages, there's no reason why I can't make it 36 pages. And so I find every issue of Renato Jones has, has been uh, over. Like every issue has been over, and even season two, the issues are are uh, the page counts are high, but it allows me to do those double page spreads. It allows me to do the fun things. What what you'll see in the trade paperback is where it can jam you up is um, when do you stop? Like when is that issue over? And I I originally the first two issues of Renato Jones were really one issue, and those are oversized issues right now. So uh, you know it's. It, it's it is harder, it's harder to create without constraints. So, it's, you have to balance it. Like you know, it's a bit of a it's more it's more work to yeah. figure out exactly how long it needs to be and exactly what it wants to be. But I think it also allows you more power and more freedom. But with greater power, you know, comes greater. <laughs> Where do you think uh, the industry is headed if they persist with the twenty and twenty two page floppy uh, $3.99 and rising price? I mean. Do you think that could signal the end if they they stay within that res very restrictive format? Well, I'm very I'm actually very optimistic about the industry of comic books, and I think part of it is because if you look at the history of comic books, 
um, every 20 years, they almost go out of business. Mm -hmm. And when I broke into comics was right when Marvel was filing bankruptcy protection. And every editor I met was like, your work is really good. I would hire you today, but um, there won't be comic books five years from now, so you should get a job somewhere else. Doing video games, stuff like that. <laughs> you know, Neil Adams, I think, was told the same thing when he was yeah. trying to break into comics. <laughs> Uh, and so when I broke in, when I really did break in, um, sales were horrible. Uh, everyone was so miserable and pessimistic. But the, a great thing happened was all the people that were just in it for because it was easy money uh, left. And uh, the people that stayed making comic books, uh, that time in Marvel, I think, was one of its most creative and powerful times. Uh great creators were given a lot of freedom to make great work and uh, it some some of that some of that work from that time was just so exciting and inspirational and and, and, and powerful and it so you see these cycles happen all the time and I think um, 20 pages is not a lot of story for five dollars or whatever but um, I don't know what's going to happen, but I just know that the, the medium will survive, whatever, however it shakes out. So I don't worry about that per se. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Maybe the future is digital distribution where there's no cost, no pretty cost. I don't know, but who knows? I don't know. The medium will continue and, and I'll continue in it. And I don't worry so much about that part of it right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree that it's always going to continue in some form, one way or the other, whether it's going to be digital, whether it's going to be in larger trade size books. Um, and even with the prices increasing, I know I, I've been collecting for years and reading for years, and I know, okay, that's it, $1, that is the absolute highest I'm going to go. And okay, two ninety nine. that's it, that is the three ninety nine. So, I mean, you know, I, like every, a lot of other people, we stay, we stay with it because we love it. Yeah, the great thing about image trades, like my Ronaldo Jones season one trade, is only nine ninety nine, which is cheap. Yeah, cheap. I mean, if you've been trade waiting, the wait is over. Buy, spend that. It's less than ten dollars. So you know, buy, buy it. <laughs> oh, absolutely. No, and all the issues were larger than regular issues, so the reader really makes out. Um, yeah, it's they image does a great job with those introductory uh, prices, even just for the regular trades when they're not the nine ninety nine. They're still really good deals. So. You, know, you get the whole story right there. And I wanted to ask you about that, some of the challenges, rather, that you might be facing um, trying to market the trade. I mean, have you uh, – I mean, you're, you're up against um, other well-known properties like Spider-Man, Batman. The shelves are very crowded, you know, and there's a lot of product out there. How are you working to differentiate yourself from the other books out there? I mean, obviously, the story is very different from a lot of the books out there. But um, you know, have you learned anything from the release of the single issues that, that you're now applying to the sale of the trade paperback? Well, what I have learned about um, doing a, a creator book is it's a strange marketplace right now. Like it's it's very crowded. Like there's so many books. Like so many books. Like so many books. Like, and a lot of good ones too. <laughs> a lot of good ones. Yeah, and you know, even amongst the top two, Marvel and DC. Um, appear to be often just trying to outdo each other with just the amount of material on the stands every month, you know? And then you combine that with this kind of uh, explosion of new books from Image all the time, and it's just so many, so many comics out there. Like, what? how do you differentiate yourself? 
what's interesting is if you take a step back, the same problem exists in the TV landscape right now. There are so many shows on TV, like so many shows, like so many shows on TV. In Vancouver, we had 60 concurrent television productions filming in the city at one time. Oh, man. That's just in Vancouver. You know, Amazon has has their own shows. Netflix has their own shows. The, net, the cable has their own shows. The networks have their own shows. It's like, And then if you look at film, in actuality, less films are being shown in theaters than ever before. But really, actually, more films are being made than ever before because the cost of making films has dropped so much that more films are being created with, you know, uh, uh, young filmmakers and and uh, cheap uh, filmmaking and editing platforms. So I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a problem that is in every aspect of everything. And, and the Internet itself, I've, I've heard that, the, uh, you know, there was a time when you had four channels or whatever. or But now it's a generation and an, an age of um, – of, uh, specialization like like what is your niche you know everything's mm-hmm. niche. like that's where the, the markets aren't are no longer like the the masses it's like what what is your niche and i don't i honestly have no answers i don't know how to i don't know how to create the niche i don't know how to fill the niche i don't know how to market the niche i don't know how to how to i don't know how, i don't know what i'm doing <laughs> you know like, well you're doing no, it very well apparently <laughs> I have no idea, you know, and I don't know. I don't know what's what's successful. I don't know what's not successful. I have I have no idea. It's it's almost too much for me to wrap my head around at this point. Here's what I do know. I know that I know how to fulfill myself as a creator and create a piece of work that challenges what I can do and challenges the medium and I think challenges people's expectations. So I can do that, and that's all I can do, really. You know, like I, I'll do some podcasts, I do some interviews, I maybe come up with some cool ads. But um, uh, but as a content creator, the 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 only real power I have is in creating that content. You know, like that's that's my true power, and that's what it's going to have to be. I don't know. <laughs> okay, fair enough, fair enough. And well, I think the timing for Renato Jones in this country is perfect, especially it's like it'll come out a week before inauguration. Not that it's like I said a political book, but just a lot of the the subject matter in there about the haves and the have-nots and wealth meaning power and rising to the top through wealth. Uh, you know, timing's very good. Well, what's here's what's interesting about that is, you know, um Donald Trump won half of the popular vote over half of the popular vote. So or, or, you know, ish, half-ish of the popular vote. So if you do try to look at Renato Jones through the through the lens of it being a political book, that means that means half the readers aren't going to like it. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> but again, it was never created to address no. the political spectrum. It's just a, a book about today's world. So I hope people don't look at it as a political book. But, but I can't, I can't ignore that it is, you know. And in many ways, season two starts to address this new shift in the world we live in directly. Like it's, it's affected the book in a way I didn't, I didn't intend it to, and I didn't mean for it to, but as I'm, uh, and the books, these books were plotted, but as I'm actually now writing these single issues, it is affecting the world. And how can it not like this, the events in, the, in America that, that have happened the past couple months are, 
are are are, are shifting. They are are like you know uh, massive. There's a massive shift in in whatever's going on, and so it can't you can't not have it affect your work. So I don't know. I don't know. I again, I have no answers. No answers. Yeah. Answers. I'll just re- retreat again. Retreat to my <laughs> my studio and just make art. Did you not contribute to the Love is Love uh, book that came out a couple weeks ago? I did. Well, he, he, so Love is Love was, you know, um, Mark approached me about um, contributing. Mark and Draco? That's right, mm-hmm. yeah. And, um, I, you know, as an artist, you get asked to contribute to a lot of charity books. There's a lot of, always a lot of, you know, people, I find the comic book community are full of artists in general. I think are, are fairly empathetic and empathic and and they always want to, you know, the part of art making is, I think, uh, uh, that part of people that wants to share good, you know, interesting emotional parts of themselves with the world or whatever. So anytime there's a natural disaster or a tragedy or a situation, someone's always making a, a comic book project to address it. And there's just not enough time to, like, I can barely handle my workload, so there's never time to do and contribute to all the different charity books that you would like to do, you know, just as someone who cares about the world. But I found in particular the Love is Love book just affected me in a very real way. I have a lot of um, friends of different orientations and uh, it just felt, it felt like I just couldn't say no. You know, it was like you had offered this and I was like, oh yes, instantly. I will make, I will make some room. You know, I feel horrible, but this natural disaster here, this tragedy over here or whatever, but I just can't make the room. But with the love is love project, I was like, I can, I'll just make the room. Then, then the big challenge was like, well, what do you do? Like I'm a straight white male from Canada who was contributing to such a specific tragedy. Um, like what's the way in? Like I had no way in. I, I, just, I knew I wanted to do it, but then I started just banging my head against the wall. Like, how do I? Like, who am I to say? Like, how do I not make this a sermon? How do I not make this a lecture? How do I not make this like about some guy talking about something he knows nothing about? And I kind of got cold feet, and I kind of like found myself not being able to help, not being able to contribute. <laughs> and Mark was like. Well, I kept asking, are, are you ready yet? And I was like, I just need another day. And, and I, I did that like for two weeks. And, uh, and I didn't know what to do. I just, it was just like, it was like, uh, I, I was scared and I was, uh, I was nervous. And I didn't know how to, how, how to, how to help. I knew I wanted to. I didn't know how, what I was doing again. I had no answers. And I just, um, happened across this moment in, in the actual shooting that, that just spoke to me and was such a universal moment um, about a young man who, in the face of this, he texted his mother and, and his message to her was, I love you, mommy. And it was so, I felt so connected to that because I have kids. And I felt like this is amazing that in so, someone is in a horrible tragic situation and they are able to text their mother to comfort themselves in that situation. Like the love of a mother could like transcend and transport itself to that person who was going to die tragically. But at that moment it was like that love 
helped them through that situation and and in a way brought that mother to that person. And, and this is a grown man in a horrible situation. And I thought, well, I, I yes, okay, finally. Like I, I can relate to that. Like the love of a parent to a child and how that can – sustain itself into adulthood and in the most in the most horrible times we still have that connection to our parents uh and especially to the our the mother figure is such a i was, I was like i felt like oh that's my that's 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 what i can do in an honest truthful way contribute and so i, I kind of just drew an image that portrayed that that man as a boy with his mother in that situation in the text message and it was it's kind of a, a bit of a, a codified image, but if you are aware of the stories, it it does start to unravel itself into it into something that actually happened with an actual people with actual where love actually did uh, stand up against this this tragic storm, and it did love did in many ways help that person through the darkest time and. Uh, I don't know. It was it was it was a, it was a bit of a revelation for me, but it was it was. I'm I'm glad I could finally find some way to help, uh, or, add, or add to the conversation, or just or just a more underlying that uh, mm-hmm. something else that had happened. You know. Yeah. No, that's fantastic, and I think that book's done really well. Hasn't it sold out? Yeah. Yeah. It's what's weird is I think because there were some issues with the first printing, the second printing sold out before the first printing, and now the first printing sold out, and um, they're going into a third printing. Uh, it's cool. It's really great. Um, I'm excited to have been able and, – and hats off to Mark for just keeping – you know, if he didn't harass me, I would probably wouldn't have any. <laughs> and speaking of philanthropic people, all the proceeds are going to the victims, the survivors, and the families. Yeah, yeah. I mean in many ways, I don't know if the money generated will be substantial. Like mm-hmm. it will probably help some people in some ways, but um, I think – it probably had a greater effect in that it was uh, a very well-known and talked-about book in the comic book community, and I think it's it helped resolve the comic book community against um, and for people, and and it's more like the that small phenomenon within our industry and the readership that supported the book. I think that's the true win. Like yeah. that coming together is the true win. The, the, the money, you know, I'm sure it'll help some people, but it's not, you know. Who knows what happens to that money? It, it, I hope it helps a couple of people, but it's really like our industry, the readers and the creators, all all, all coming together for one purpose. Um, I just wanted to ask you about a few other things that you're working on. In fact, um, that you have worked on. There is a uh, Sci-Fi Channel show called Aftermath. Yeah. So this past year, while I was doing Renato Jones, I actually directed on th- three series, and Aftermath was one of those series and it was the last thing I did this year directing wise and um, stars Anne Heche and James Tupper and uh, it's um, this really it was a really cool directing experience to be honest it was like kind of a small scrappy show and it was filmed in Vancouver and I jumped on for the ride and it was my first one hour adult <coughs> drama and um, it turned out to be one of the one of the most uh, uh interesting and fulfilling directing experiences that I've had so far. Hmm. Strange, strangely enough. And it was great. It was great. I loved it. It was, it was a, it was a cool show. It's, it's such a scrappy, creative uh, show. And uh, it was fun, F- fun, to, fun to do that. It was my first year in TV and I wasn't sure if I'd like it. Like, <laughs> like when you're a film director, a theatrical director, 
you hear about TV directors, and, and this is what they tell you. This is what they tell you when you're a film director. They say that TV directing, it's your only goal is to be asked back. And it's like, what? <laughs> it's like, wait, what? It's like, no, no, no. I'm an, you know, like, I don't do it. I don't, I don't, I'm not digging ditches. Like, I don't, like, I do the directing because I love directing and creating and being an artist in another medium. I don't, I'm not just there as a job. So what, I tried it out. I tried it out this year for the first time. And I found that that was not the case. Even though people were still telling me that while I was doing it, it was not the case. I could I could actually flex all of my skills and abilities and draw out all my shots and even contribute to some uh, set design and production design and art, uh, 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 prop design and uh, visual effects design and even even uh, contributed finished visual effects shots. Like I found I could I could actually find a way to use all of my tool sets and, and turn it into a creative and fulfilling experience as a director in a way that. Most people tell you it's not, but it, 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 that, that's that's a lie. It's actually it's actually there is a way to make TV directing as fulfilling as 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 directing for for a film. And you worked on a couple of other uh, shows as well. Yeah, I worked on a, a show for Disney called uh, Mech X Four. It's like, kind of like Pacific Rim for kids. And I worked on a show called uh, Other Kingdom for Nickelodeon, which is kind of like a, a fantasy uh, uh, high school fantasy uh, uh, show. But uh, I really felt Aftermath was probably the truest in, in terms of content to the kind of material that I am drawn to as a director. So uh, that and the, the, the actors, uh, not just uh, James and Anne, but the whole, all, the, whole uh, the cast was, was actually pretty uh, amazing and fun to work with. And the showrunners were, were uh, guys that have been around for a long time, but were, were like super inventive and creative and supportive. It was, it was just a good experience. Well, I know it's out there and available to be streamed and watched, so I'm going to add it to my ever-growing list of shows I have to catch up on. We've been talking about so many shows. <laughs> well, is there anything that you do watch and follow? On, on, I know that you don't have a whole lot of time with all of your work and a family. Believe me, I understand. I have two little ones, too. Um, when you can squeeze in some quality time, what do you uh, – for television, uh, what are you able to catch up with and stay up with? <laughs> Yeah, for TV, um, well, right now I am making my way through uh, Marcella, is that what it's called, for uh, Netflix. Okay. It's, a UK, it's a UK crime show that's really cool. Um, it's about a woman who is in a marriage that's falling apart and she has been out of – she's a, de- a, a murder cop, like a cr- crime detect- detective, and she gets back into the mix and her personal life intersects with – this kind of serial killer that they're uh, that they're trying to capture in, in many ways. It's really interesting and feels very British and is is really cool. And then some of the American shows I've been watching are like you know like uh, Westworld was interesting. Oh, that was great. Oh, I watched that. Yeah. <laughs> um, what are some of the other shows? Uh, I'm I'm making my way through um, Van Helsing right now, another sci-fi show, and um, uh, oh, Mr. Robot and. Yes. Uh, so many, so many shows. What are you watching? Well, I I watched Mr. Robot. I watched um, Westworld. Uh, I saw The Crown on Netflix. That was very good about Queen Elizabeth. Um, yeah, heard that's awesome. That's I heard it. it was awesome. It was something that me and the missus could both watch and enjoy. Um, I've watched all the Marvel Netflix TV shows. Yeah, oh, yeah. almost right Daredevil, away. Daredevil season two, I thought, was amazing. Like it started slow, but but halfway through, it really. 
kicked it up a notch, and I thought, oh, yeah, this, oh, this is great, because I was a little worried because it was such a slow start, but I think those Netflix Marvel shows are, are really uh, progressive and interesting. Oh, and they nailed The Punisher, too. They nailed yeah. It. And it's, yeah, it's going to have its own series, I believe, or its own show coming up, too. Yeah, you bet. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to Iron Fist, and uh, you have a, a paperback coming out, a trade paperback, about the same time, I believe. Yeah. So they're collecting my two previous trade paper trades to collect the first 12 issues, well, the only 12 issues of my run on Iron Fist, The Living Weapon. And that's where I wrote, drew, penciled, inked, and colored a 12-issue story about Iron Fist. And that is getting com- collected as a complete collection in March, I think just in time for the uh, the release of the Netflix show. So be fun. I, I love big collections, and I, I, you know, I'm going to get up my hands on a bunch of them myself. I'm definitely going to look into the trade because I haven't had a chance to read that yet with my ever-growing stack of books. And I've always been a, a big Iron Fist fan. I have all the old uh, – the original series in Marvel premiere and then his, his initial run in, in the 70s. Uh, yeah. yeah. John Byrne worked on that too, I believe. He, he did, as did – that was Larry Hama's first penciling effort. And um, one of my favorite comics of all time is G.I. Joe number 21, the, the infamous silent issue that Larry Hama wrote. Oh, yes. Wrote. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and if you like the Marvel premiere stuff of Iron Fist, you you may like The Living Weapon. I, the two touchstones I used for that run was the very initial Iron Fist stories in Marvel premiere, and then also the uh, the later stuff with Brubaker, uh, Fraction, and uh, mm-hmm. and, and David David Aja. Uh-huh. It is definitely on the list. When you cool. get that, yeah. and well, you're into I understand you're into kung fu. Um, you, are you working on a kung fu film? Well, I, I have been working on my own martial arts film for for quite some time, and it's almost gone into production many times, and it's still it still uh, could happen at any moment. But it's 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 been a you know there's no there's no there's not a start date at this point. But mm-hmm. I've loved. I mean, I'm a childhood fan of. I've I've trained in a little bit of martial arts. Like I'm more of a fan, but I've trained in. A little bit of karate, a little bit of taekwondo, a little bit of pancreation, a little bit of MMA, like just enough to l- love it. But and you know, I've also loved martial arts movies as a kid, and even to this day, uh, the the it's not as big a genre as it used to be in terms of uh, popularism. But for me, I, I I eat it up. I just love that stuff. I guess I've always felt there's such a direct line for a martial artist and a visual artist. Like it's really about a person who tries to draw all the knowledge of as far back as they can go, all the masters of the mediums, incorporate those skills into yourself and learn. It's a never ending journey of education and achievement. And, but it's only you, like it's not a team sport. It's not mm-hmm. football. Right. You, know, you can't hide behind a defensive end, but it's like just you m- trying to achieve some kind of thing um, against adversity and in many ways uh, th- there's so many similarities between uh, uh, <laughs> combat and art making well there is a lot of it you're struggling against yourself to overcome yeah. your own limitations yeah and that's I, that's the biggest journey in martial arts too like you know like uh, in the true journey of martial arts is not you know can I beat up the other guys it's, it's like a spiritual enlightenment you know it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's something deeper like it's like how how can I become the best version of myself that I that I can be? And it's that same, the same questions and drive and and uh, sense of uh, loss and, and and achievement can be can be found in the, in the visual arts. 
Well, Carrie, thanks so much. I appreciate your time you spent with us today. And uh, so we're going to look for the trade paperback coming out of Renato Jones, which is next week, actually, which is the 11th of January. That's going to be in comic book stores. And then I think on the 17th, it's going to be available in bookstores. Yeah, so uh, Renato Jones comes out, um, the season one. Season two will start shipping probably in May. We, again, we're, haven't, those days haven't been locked down quite yet. But again, in March, Iron Fist, The Living Weapon, The Complete Collection hit the, hits the stands. And then also right now I'm writing a, uh, a segment in Dark Horse Presents that my friend Trinixie is drawing and my friend Dave McKegg is coloring, and that's called The Black Sinister. So that's kind of the work that's available right now. So track down those issues too. I think those will, those will also be collected at some point. Okay, but, great. The Black Sinister in Dark Horse Presents. Yeah. And then I'm also writing Iron Fists, plural. That'll hit stands sometime in the summer. Oh, excellent. You've been a busy guy. Yeah, man. It's, I've, I've, had a, I've had a busy year. I've had a bit of a busy year, but uh, I wouldn't have it any other way. Well, that's great. It's good to be busy and doing what you love. Well, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it, and I wish you all the very best of luck. No, th- thanks. I appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk to me. All right, and that's my interview with Kari Andrews, and you can pick up his trade paperback this Wednesday, January 11th. Renato Jones, The 1%, Volume 1 and Volume 2 should be coming later this year around May. And also coming up in March, Iron Fist, The Living Weapon Trade Paperback, the 12-issue series. You can pick that up. And don't forget, he also has The Black Sinister running right now in Dark Horse Presents. I'm Christopher Calloway. You can reach me at Creator Talks Pod on Facebook and on Twitter. I'll be back next week with another creator interview. And I know you have a lot of podcasts to choose from, and I thank you for choosing this one.